Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first three verses for us. It's been a while since we've been in this book, but we're going to continue our study in a very important letter of Paul's to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to read beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a very disturbing picture of who we are all outside of Christ in our humanity before you. You paint this picture in very stark terms. This is reality. This is terrifying. But we praise you all the more for your gospel of grace that finds us in this state and offers to save us. Would you implant this word deep in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love Ephesians chapter 2. I love the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Because it spells out in such a beautiful outline the three stages of our conversion. Verses 1 through 3 explains what I just read. Who we were before we became a Christian. Verses 4 through 7 talk about what Christ actually does on our behalf in the gospel. How he saves us. And then the final three verses explain what now. What does life in Christ look like once we become a believer? It is so clear and such a helpful outline that I often use this either to share the gospel with somebody or to have somebody work through it once they've come to faith. So I don't know if you would remember this, but the last two adult baptisms we had in this space, those who shared their testimony actually used Ephesians 2 as the outline. This is a paragraph of who I was before I came to faith. This is what Jesus has done, how he saved me, and this is what it means for me today. That falls out before us, but today we're just going to look at the first part of that outline. Today we're just going to look at the first three verses, who were we before we came to Christ? Now just the fact that we're talking about that should maybe prompt a question in all of us. Not every single person in this room is a Christian. And I actually praise God for that. I praise God that many of you have shared your stories with me and you are not a born-again believer. You don't know where you stand with Jesus, but you are willing to come and pray and engage and hear about the gospel. I praise God that you are here if you do not know whether you have converted or not. We're thankful for you. But anybody who's here who has already converted, they've left these priest-Christ days in their past, and now they're a born-again believer, and they've experienced this miracle of new life, we might be asking the question, why spend time, why spend an entire sermon on who we were before we became a Christian? Like, why are we going to rehash the past now if we've already come to faith and we already trust in Jesus? Well, that's a great question. And I want to give us two answers, which are the two points of our sermon today. Number one, the better we understand who we were before Christ saved us, the better we understand 
how it is that sin dogs us every single day. I'll repeat that in a minute. That's the first one. If we understand who we are before we came to Christ, we understand our relationship with sin today. Number two, the better we understand who we were before we came to Christ, before he saved us, the sweeter Jesus and his gospel will appear to us. So those are two reasons why we are going to dig deep into our history, into the backstory of who we were before we came to faith. Number one, the better we understand who we were before Christ saved us, the better we understand how it is that sin still dogs us every single day of our Christian lives. Look at verses one through three. I'll just read a few selections from there. Trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Those are stark descriptions, but this is the backstory of every single human being sitting in this room. I just this week finished a haunting memoir of a girl who grew up in a fundamentalist home on a mountain in Idaho under a schizophrenic dad who was very suspicious of the government. So like she did not have a birth certificate and she did not go to school at all. Such was her dad's relationship with the government. I mean, it was kind of like Ruby Ridge type setting for her childhood. And she writes this memoir and it's a beautiful, heartbreaking description of this childhood. But then she goes on to explain her life as she goes on actually to get a PhD at Cambridge, which is incredible. There is not a page in that memoir that is not touched by her childhood. The things you so badly want her to break free from and experience new life in are the very things that dog her every single day because that's how a human being works. We get hardwired in these stories and they will affect us every day of our lives, Christian or not. Anybody here who's writing a memoir for themselves must in some way include Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Because Paul says, every man, woman, and child in this room was shaped by three guides before they came to Christ, and they are dogged by these three guides after they come to Christ. So let's look just briefly at what each of these three are. Number one, look at verse 2. He says, You were following the course of the world. In other words, in every era, in every subculture, there are specific ways in which the people around us shape us to collectively, together, rebel against God. Wherever we experienced our childhood, culture, or subculture, it laid out the rules for us between right and wrong between success and failure, and we can't help ourselves but blindly follow in the footsteps of our forefathers. The course of this world tells us what to think about everything, about race, about women, about justice, environment, politics, money, health, beauty, age, absolutely everything. And as much as each of us would like to fancy ourselves kind of 
bastions, anchors, freestanding members of society who shape the culture around us. What we learn from psychologists and sociologists is actually our culture shapes us far more than we will ever turn around and shape the culture around us. The sins of the fathers are visited on the sons. The banner of condemnation that waves over every single generation is that you took the world's word for it. It told you what to think. It told you what to value. It told you what to do. And in and of yourselves, you couldn't help yourselves. And you followed the course of this world. And that shaped you then. And that shapes you today. That was our first guide. Number two, verse two. Paul says, cryptically, you were following the prince of the power of the air. So I don't know if you remember cartoons back in the day that used to depict a cartoon character who was wrestling between good and evil. And when he was doing that, you've got these two things that appear on his shoulders, right? You've got an angel and a demon, and they're both trying to convince him of, of what he should be doing in this situation. No surprise, that is theologically inaccurate. The world is not neutral. Before we come to faith in Christ, we're not in a neutral state weighing 50-50 good versus evil. Will the demon or the angel convince me today? Before we come to faith in Christ, we have no desire to please the one true living Trinitarian God. Now, we will never before Christ be as bad as we could be. We won't do every sin that we could do because God will restrain us by his grace. But we don't follow him out of this desire, heartfelt desire to please him. There is one God in our life that we listen to, and that is the voice of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Just like we walked in the course of the world and followed the subculture we were born into, so also we follow after the prince of the power of the air. Number three, he says in verse three, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So when God created us, he created a good thing. He created us to be human beings who are passionate people. We have desires, we have urges, we have impulses. All of those have a negative connotation to us in a church setting because sin has given them a negative connotation. But those were good things that God gave every single one of us. Because before the fall, if I was thirsty, like I was parched and I needed something to drink, it would remind me when I found water or wine That as a deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. My physical hungers and thirsts turn me to the divine. But once sin entered the world, we kept the desires and we lost the divine. All the impulses are there. All the urges are there. All the passion is there. All of it can be used by God for his kingdom. But in our fallen state, we lose the divine in our desires. We spend every waking moment 
outside of Christ, responding to impulses and desires in some way. Every breath, every moment, we have urges outside of Christ that we are responding to in some way. It's been famously said, the heart wants what the heart wants. That sums up what Paul is talking about here. And depending on when you were born, you think that either Emily Dickinson or Woody Allen or Selena Gomez first said that. But it's totally true. The heart wants what the heart wants. We have bent ourselves around the impulses and urges of our hearts. These are our three gods. The world, the devil, our desires... And all of them have far more influence on us before we come to faith and even after we come to faith than any one of us could possibly know. This is important for us today. This is not just important because we're setting the stage for how you might now become a Christian. That's critical if you have not. But this is important for every one of us who is a born-again believer today and who has left this world behind them Whether we became a believer early in life and we can't really remember these pre-Christ days or we became a believer later in life and we're haunted by some of these memories, the reason this matters for us today if we are a believer is it helps explain why sin, why the devil, why our culture dogs us every single day Every single hour of our Christian lives. I think in a fantasy world, we'd like to fancy our conversion in better terms than the Bible does. Like when we come to faith, Jesus answers all of our problems and we live happily ever after Jesus and I together with a sunset. That's Pixar. That is not the Apostle Paul. Every Christian is a recovering addict at various stages of sobriety. Every single believer, no matter what they look like on the outside, no matter what their position is, no matter what you see as their track record, every single Christian in this life is a recovering addict at various stages of sobriety. I wish this wasn't true. I wish that was not true at all. I wish Jesus made us all not just positionally righteous, but practically righteous. I wish he didn't just declare us righteous and impute us with the righteousness of Christ so that he sees us as righteous. I wish we actually turned around and did righteous stuff and thought righteous stuff and believed righteous stuff all the time. I wish that was our experience as believers, but Jesus does not do that for any believer. Every Christian is a recovering addict at various stages of sobriety. Now, if you wrestle with this, and as a believer you wrestle with sin in your life, it can cause this identity crisis. These are the slew of questions that will run through every single born-again believer's mind. If I am really converted... 
Like if Christ has really dramatically saved me and raised me from the dead and I walk by the spirit and not by the flesh and I'm a son or a daughter and I'm adopted and I'm promised wonderful and beautiful things, why do I still sin every hour of every day? Why do I think about my body image all the time? Like what I look like and how other people perceive me. Why if I'm born again and I trust in Christ, do I still look at pornography? That addiction still dogs me. Why if I'm a born again believer and I have the fruit of the Spirit, am I angry all the time? Why if Jesus has made himself the center of my life, do I act like I love money more than anything else in the world? Am I really a believer? Has this conversion really stuck? Has it reached the core of my heart? Because if it did, I wish I stopped looking a lot like I used to look before Christ saved me in the first place. Do I really even believe this stuff? That is a critical identity crisis for every believer. Because first of all, you're coming to grips with what Jesus has said that he's done in your heart. And second, you're coming to grips with the reality of sin that dogs you every single day. And the answer for us is, because I was born with a bent, because I have spent my entire life following the course of the world and Satan and the desires of my heart, I will in this life always walk with a limp. In fact, the Bible promises me that I will be dogged by sin every single day. Jesus, when he taught us to pray and he said you should wake up and ask God for your daily bread, he also said while you're at it, you should ask him to forgive you your sin as you forgive those who have sinned against you. You're going to do that every single day. First John says, if you come into a place like this on Sunday morning and we have a confession of sin and there's a minute of silence and you say to your heart, I don't think I have anything to confess before the Lord. John says, you are a freaking liar. You don't know what you're talking about. You have sin deep inside of your heart. But you know what? If you'll actually come to grips with that and be honest with what everybody else around you sees, that you're a Christian who sins daily and hourly, you might actually need Jesus as much today as you needed him when you first believed. Like you might be dependent on him today to do new things in you as when you first believed. Let me give you a a simple example of this. I struggle with anger every single day. I'm an angry person. You're not going to see that because I'm not going to throw anything. I'm not going to raise my voice at you. I'm just going to hate you in my heart and smolder with resentment. Right? And so none of you knows right now who I'm angry at at this moment. (laughs) I have prayed probably 300 times that God would reach into my heart and just take that anger away. Take the stump, 
take the roots, take the branches, take the bad fruit that it wreaks in my family's life and my church's life and my community's life. Just, just take the whole thing out. And I've, I've been on my knees. I've been in tears. I have prayed that prayer. I have got up. I have felt a sense of renewal. I've walked about the house for an hour. One of my kids will do something stupid and I will snap at them. And I'll say, God, didn't we just talk about this? Now I'm getting angry that you didn't answer my prayer on anger. If you would answer that prayer and I was freed from this, think of all the free time I would have to worship you and sing hymns and read my Bible because I'm not stewing in anger. As far as I know, God has never answered that prayer in the affirmative in my life, not only for anger, but pretty much every major sin I deal with. Like when I came to faith, I stopped abusing drugs. That was a freedom. I stopped punching people in the face. That was a freedom and a mercy. But like the biggies in my life, selfishness, pride, lust, greed, self-centeredness, God has never once reached down wholesale, yanked the thing from my heart so that I'm free from it every single day. And do you know what that does in my Christian life? I told you that when I wake up and get in the car every morning, I pray the Lord's Prayer and I ask for the fruit of the Spirit. There's like a newfound dependency in me on Jesus. Not just the Jesus of John 3.16, but the Jesus who's the branch and I'm the vine. And I need you today, Jesus. If I'm not going to respond in rage to a situation, I need you to walk with me. I'm desperate for you. He's going to create that sense of dependency in every single one of us as we come to grips with our sin. The better we understand who we were before Christ saved us, the better we understand how it is that sin dogs us every single day. Number two, and lastly, The better we understand who we were before Christ saved us, the sweeter Christ and his gospel will appear. If we don't understand who we were before Christ saved us, we can't actually understand what exactly it is that Christ did on our behalf. Like if we go around saying that Jesus is the answer... We don't know what that means until we come to grips with what the problem is. The first four English words of my ESV Bible separate the big G gospel of the Bible from the little G false gospels being peddled today in psychotherapeutic self-help so-called churches in our city and our globe. Look at those first four words and let them sink into your mind and heart. And you were dead. Before you came to Jesus, you were dead. Not you were dying. Not you were limping. Not you found yourself in desperate straits. Not that you were in a crossroads of your life and didn't know what was next. Not you were in a foxhole and needed deliverance. You were dead. Gone. 
deceased, expired. No other story of our conversion comes close to the reality of our conversion and the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. If you think that finding Christ was mainly a story about finding yourself, like in college you experimented with a bunch of different things, Buddhism and Shintoism, and you looked, listened to a couple of TED Talks, and then when you finally happened upon Christianity, you realized your full human potential. If that's the story of your conversion, you cannot see Jesus as he truly is. If you grew up in the church and you've always been a good person and you did the right thing and you frowned on people who did the wrong thing and when you found Jesus who was hiding inside of your religion and you felt like he was a boost to you in the right direction of being more righteous than you were when you first trusted in him, you cannot possibly see Jesus as he really is. If you are now pleased with the caliber of Christian you have become and you feel like God is on the winning side of the arrangement of having you in his kingdom because you're such an active participant in all the things you return and do for God, you cannot see Jesus as he really is. Unless you own the truth that before Christ You were dead, deceased, expired, hopeless without his intervention. You cannot see Jesus as he truly is. But if God will give us eyes to see that Jesus raises dead people to life, then the center of our story, it shifts from us and where we were and to God and what he has done and Jesus and his gospel will shine all the brighter. Let's pray together. Lord, may we decrease, 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 decrease to the point of acknowledging our death before you have saved us so that your bright and glorious gospel will shine all the more and that you will increase in our lives, in our fight with sin and our celebration of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.